Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hey folks, we have a great show for you today. My guest is Joe the Butcher Niccolo. Joe has had an outstanding career as a multi-Grammy winning producer but is also best known for founding one of the seminal independent record labels, Rough House, located in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Rough House's artist roster has included Cypress Hill, The Fugees, Lauren Hill, Wycliffe Jean, Proz, and Criss Cross. His label would go on to sell over 100 million records. And folks, I'd said records, not streams. As a producer, Joe has worked with such artists as Billy Joel, DJ Jazzy Jeff, Will Smith, Bob Dylan, Aerosmith, and the Rolling Stones. And if that's not enough, he also tried his hand as a film producer, producing films such as Shade with Jamie Foxx and Sylvester Stallone, and Just Add Water with Danny DeVito and Jonah Hill. Joe has been honored by the Grammys with its Heroes Award and was inducted in the Philadelphia Walk of Fame. This is a good one. Next up, my conversation with the butcher, Joe Niccolo. Hey, Joe Niccolo. Hey, Nick. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you today? I am living the dream by the skin of my teeth. Oh. But just barely. I think there's a, 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 a large group of citizens living that way currently. Well, we, we're, we're going to get through it. And uh, music helps soothe the savage beast. And uh, this too shall pass. So it's um, and we don't really have much of a choice, do we? No, we don't. Um, well, thank you for doing this with me. I mean, I'm a, you know, you were been a very good friend over the years and a little bit of a mentor. So. I'm kind of excited to have this conversation. Well, I am excited too, man. It's just, uh, it's been way too long, dude. I'm so glad we're doing this. Indeed, indeed. So tell me a little bit. It's, uh, are you a, a native Philadelphian or Pennsylvanian? I am a native uh, suburbs of Philadelphia. I grew up in Wayne, Pennsylvania, which is a few blocks from what was the Devon Horse Show, which I think is still the Devin Horse Show with my twin brother, Phil. Uh, I think they call that the main line, but uh, our house was the size of a postage stamp and we slept in the same, <laughs> slept, slept in the same bedroom. And, uh, but it was good. I mean, I had a, I had a good childhood. My dad was a butcher. That's where he was Joe, this Joe, the butcher senior. So that's why I'm one of the reasons why I'm Joe, the butcher junior. And, um, it was good. It was just me and my twin brother, so that was that was enough for my parents. <laughs> just us oh, two. Nice. Yeah, I was I was curious on the on your actual uh, working nickname if it was from your dad or or from just the fact that you were such a great tape splicer uh, well, in the early days. Yeah, it's actually it was a little bit of both. In uh, in the middle '80s, I did a record called Fantasy Machines with Ray Monahan, who has since passed away, and. Uh, Ray said, you know, you should you should call yourself something. You should have a handle. Why not Joe the Butcher? Because you butcher 
tape. You slice tape up. And I said, that, that'd be perfect because my dad was Joe the Butcher. As a matter of fact, um, he had a butcher shop in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, which is exactly where Studio 4, the studio that me and my brother uh, opened in 1980, is. So I was... Joe the Butcher's Joe the Butcher Jr. in in Conshohocken, so it was it was kind of cool. That's awesome. And your brother is actually a twin brother, right? Yes, my brother Phil's um, Phil. Phil is uh, who's also in the music business. He um, still he he still operates uh, Studio Four uh, with Will Yip, who's um, quite a prominent. I guess it, it's punk pop producer. Uh, yeah. he, he did uh, Code Orange uh, as a, as a, as a bunch of other. Uh, uh, you know, records in that genre. So, um, so Studio Four is still there, still in Conshohocken. That's awesome. Did you guys play as kids together? I mean, musically. I mean, did you guys do any band stuff, or did you were more interested on the kind of engineering or kind of the technical side initially? Yeah, we, well, we were always on the technical side. We uh, we got our first uh, uh, recording uh, recordio, the, our first tape recorder, when we were in third grade, and. Um, on that, uh, we got it on the boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey, and in one of those where they rip you off shops. And, right. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, um, we that brought us through to eighth grade where we got our first tape deck, and uh, we actually set up a studio in our parents' attic, and we would record uh, we would record kids in the attic, and that's that's how we started. Wow. Talk about kind of knowing your direction at an early age. This has been, uh, you know, it's like, um, this is all, this is all I ever wanted to do. And that's, I'm lucky because I mean, it's, it's, of course it's great when your passion and your vocation, uh, and what you can do for a living all, all coincide in the perfect storm. But it's like, I really can't do anything else (laughs) very well, but I but I have to say, man, I do this really well. So at least I, you know, it, it, it was all it was all my eggs in the same basket. So I was blessed for that. Right. Well, I think there's other things you do well, which we'll get to later on here um, as we speak. So did you go on to kind of any kind of technical school to learn the engineering side or is this just all by working at studios? Um, actually, a little bit of both. Uh, I went to Temple University graduated in for for, for RTF radio television and film and I graduated in 77 with a degree in RTF but um you know you send your resumes around and it was just like there was no no jobs to be had so uh we opened our own studio actually in Wayne called Half Track and um got to know uh a Philly engineer by the name of Obi O'Brien and Lance Quinn and uh, Lance was Tony Bon Jovi's partner in the Power Station, which is probably, which is now the Power Station again. It's probably the the, the uh, it's an infamous recording studio in New York. Uh, I remember, and we, we, me and my brother would go and sleep on the floor there, and intern at the Power Station. And, and I remember one one time where uh, Bruce Springsteen was recording Nebraska in the A room. Sheik was recording in the B room and David Bowie was recording, recording scary monsters in the C room. So that's the kind of clientele they had. And, uh, Tony and Larry Alexander and Neil Dorsman, Bob Clear Mountain. I mean, they were the Jedi masters, uh, including Tony Bon Jovi. And they, they taught, 
us how to engineer. Uh, Tony was an amazing uh, studio designer. He designed Studio Four. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting in my own home studio, which this is the first recording that I've made in my new studio, which Tony Bongiovi actually helped me to design. So that's why we had, oh, a, wow. couple, had a couple of glitches to start, but uh, I think we're on our way here. I finally, finally got a, this microphone to work. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know that history with Tony, though. That's awesome. Was there, because of like Gamble and Huff and all that stuff, like in the 70s and stuff, I mean, were there studios? I mean, was there a scene around Philadelphia? I mean, there had to be around them, so to speak. Uh, the, the studio in Philadelphia at the time was uh, Sigma, Sigma Sound. And uh, they did all the Philly international stuff. As a matter of fact, uh, David Bowie recorded, uh, was it Diamond? Young Americans, I think. Uh, was recorded at Sigma Sound in Philly, um, and then there were there were a couple of other offshoot shoot studios like right outside of Philly. But we were in Center City. Uh, we moved to Center City in 1980 as Studio Four, and um, we we were in Center City until like 1995. So the, those Sigma and us were the were the two studios in Philly. Uh, Sigma, of course, was known for the you know the Gamble and Huff, the the Philly International, the OJ's Spinners, Teddy Pendergrass. Um, we were known more. We had more of a rock and roll band. I mean, we we had we eventually recorded the Hooters and uh, Robert Hazard, but then it was um, in the early eighties, I'd say eighty three, eighty four, where. Um, I started uh, recording this. This it was funny because I was kind of the low man on the totem pole as far as the engineers were concerned uh, at that time, and uh, it was like, well, so I got, I got, to, I had, I was relegated to record the sessions that no one else really wanted to record, and at that moment, it happened to be rap music. So I became the rap music guy in Philly, and um, it it uh, it brought. I mean, it, it was it started with uh, Schooly D with uh, Gucci Time, PSK, and then I and then I did Three Times Dope and Study B and Cool C and Cash Money and Tough Crew, and they they became you know the standards that were of the of rap music that was coming out of Philadelphia. So. I'll, you know, I, I really owe everybody a debt of gratitude for, you know, me, me being the guy who had to clean up the rap scraps because <laughs> because it, uh, it it established me as Joe the Butcher. Right. And at, the, at that time, were those artists signed to just independent labels or, or were they signed to major labels? I mean, who was funding these recordings? Uh, they were all – well, start at, at first, school was, was independent – uh, but then, you know, he, he, he started blowing up uh, in Philly and then uh, Jive Records uh, saw what was happening in Philly. As, fortunately, I was able to, uh, to record and discover uh, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince with, uh, with Lawrence and Dana Goodman. And then so, so once that happened in Schooly D, uh, I, I started working really for Jive almost exclusively with, with the rap stuff because Steady B – Cool. Uh, Setting B and three times. Well, actually, three times dope was on Arista. So at, at that point, they were they were they became major records. J Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince was also on Jive. Uh, 
Steady B was on Jive, uh, Schooling was on Jive, and uh, and then uh, I guess Cash Money was on Sleeping Bag. So they were all major label records. And was that was your role more uh, engineer? Or was it actually producing those early records? It was it was a combination of both. Um, I mean, those records were were maybe. I mean, usually the 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 producer of those records was kind of the 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 guy who came up with the music with the rhythm track and you know depending on the uh on the act i had some 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 records i had more of a production hand in than not and and a lot of those records came together uh in the mixing aspect in terms of what you brought in and out because you pretty much laid everything down all at the same time and then you brought things in and out as as you made the record kind of on the fly as you as you mixed the stuff right well, that's a real interesting time and kind of a, a revolution in music, right? And there you were kind of sitting right on it. I don't know if you knew it or not, but you were. <laughs> um, um, you didn't, I didn't know it at the time. I think what, what was, what was so, um, uh, what was so gratifying and refreshing about rap at that time was there were no rules. You could, you could pretty much do anything you want. If it felt good, you could put, reverb on the kick drum enormous reverb on kick drums you could do you know there was just you didn't the vocal could just be straight up grimy scratchy in your face vocals it didn't you know there was just, it was just a certain it was all about attitude and it just came through those recordings which uh i mean it still does today i mean you know some like anything you know there's there's classic records back then and then there's records that are just downright corny but uh but but the but the you know the you know the um it was it was it was just a great time to you know to be to to be part of of the uh, that the early evolution of rap right and so that set up the studio with studio four then is kind of a contender after doing those records Yes, um, it it all happened about at the same time because um, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Like it's funny the, the the first the first gold record that I ever got was for uh, the the first Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince record, which was Rock the House. And then at the very same time, the first gold record my brother ever got was the Hooters' Nervous Night. So, and that's like middle, early, well, middle eighties ish. Um, so, you know, that the, the, it was funny. We were, we were kind of hitting on, on all cylinders at that point on different genres of music, which was awesome. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I'd say. Um, and how did you, so you're at studio four, how did you make kind of this leap or simultaneously become like a staff producer at Columbia records then? Well, what happened was, um, in uh, in right after Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince uh, won the first rap Grammy for uh, he's the DJ on the rapper, which I got totally screwed on in terms of credits, but we won't go into that because it's not worth talking about, and I just mentioned it. <laughs> um, the, um, You're on record. Oh, okay. So I got totally screwed. Thanks, uh, Ann Carly. I I, I mean. Well, it's, it's okay. It's a long story. Brian Chucky, they wanted Brian Chucky New to be the, the rap god at Jive. So like all the shit that I did for that record, Brian Chucky New got credit for. 
You can tell I'm, I don't feel there's no animosity. I don't even mind, as you can tell by my voice, that I, I don't, this doesn't, 37 years later, it doesn't bother me at all. Not at all. So anyway, but moving on, I digress. I still got, you know, I still got credit, credit for the Grammy, so screw it. Um, Nothing like a good rap battle. <laughs> where is Brian Chucky New today? That's what I want to know. He's, uh, he's he's probably living at Shenandoah, but anyway, uh, no, oh no, boy. hey man, I, I I got nothing against Brian Chucky, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't want you. To, you know, he's just he, he's a he's an excellent English guy. You know, he's I'm yeah. just kidding. But anyway, um, okay. So on to Columbia Records. <laughs> so okay, so now I'll fast forward real quick because. Uh, uh, we started Rough House. We were actually we actually got our first distribution deal through the Hine brothers at Enigma. They had I know those guys. They, yeah, and uh, they had Striper, that Poison Striper. Uh, but you know they were that was they was so they never they didn't have any rap. So uh, we brought Rough House there first. Um, the record, I don't, I don't, I can't say whether the records weren't great or the or the promotion was not on, but it just things weren't happening um, at, at at Enigma. So, but at the same time, uh, Rick Chertoff was recording the. He was producing. I guess it was maybe the. I guess it was the second Hooters record uh, at at Studio Four with my brother and, and John and yellow and Rick had just come off of the tremendous success with Cindy Lauper. And, uh, so he said, you know, I'm going to become head of A&R at, uh, at Columbia and Donnie Einer is going to be taken over as president. Why don't you come over there with me? And you could be like my first signing as a label. So we did, that was 1989. And the first two things that Rick and Donnie signed was, Rough House Records and Alice in Chains in 1989. Yep, and that yep. started um, that started the run at, at Rough House at Columbia Records. Right. Well, it's that's interesting. Rick Chertoff, a very nice and talented man for sure. So I didn't I didn't put together that kind of Hooters connection there. Yeah, because that, that's that's how I got to know Rick is because he was he was at Studio Four every day and he saw what me and Chris were doing and thought. Um, I don't know, man. These guys seem to have something going on here. So he brought us into Columbia. Right. So when I got to Columbia, my most, you know, I was obviously concentrating on my first signings. But later on into it, I was like, I got to be involved with these roughhouse guys. So I was I was like begging them, like, please, please. <laughs> what, was please your, what, was, what was your first signing? Alice in Chains. Oh, that was your signing. Yeah. Oh, shit. So, because yeah, I remember towed the wet, to, towed the wet sprocket and Alice in Chains. Okay, because I remember being in Donnie's office. You must have been there when when we got signed. Because I thought I thought we were both in the same room together. Of course, it's been two hundred and thirty-seven years, but I could have sworn <laughs> that we were in the same room together at that point. And of course, I remember seeing seeing you after that. But yeah. that's funny, man. Okay, that's yeah, awesome. But I was in I was in L.A. at the time, so it's okay. probably. I wasn't really in the New York office at that time. So. Okay, so that's so why anyway. So you, yeah. so, so you make the deal at um, Columbia. It's a, I su suppose some kind of a joint venture. And um, who did you first uh, sign and record? 
the first act we recorded uh, for Columbia and uh, Columbia was uh, he, uh, an act, an artist by the name of Chiba, as who was actually from L.A. And uh, we did a song called The Piper, which to this day I still really, really like. He was part of, uh, of the, the, the Digital Underground crew. And okay. um, it actually, that was our first charting record, actually, uh, uh, at, at Columbia. That record actually did chart. And it, it was, like I said, it was called The Piper. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was jazz influence. So if, you know, if you go on the YouTube uh, and look up the video. It's it's a it's a pretty cool song. I think it still holds up. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. I don't remember that. So, um, and then you went on to sign a lot of like. I mean, you were kind of on a roll, man. You guys were like batting like a thousand after that, weren't you? It, it was pretty incredible. We we did sign a Philly uh, rapper. His name was Larry Lair, which uh, uh, it was. They were part. Of, he was part of the Three Times Dub Crew, and that didn't. Uh, didn't quite, uh, didn't quite translate to uh, to many record sales. But then we um, we the, our, our our first number one rap single was Tim Dog Fuck Compton. Ah. <laughs> I mean, I'm from the South Bronx. Fuck Compton. I mean, it's just kind of like <laughs> I look back on that, man. I'm I'm sure glad those you know those West Coast. Rebels didn't put a cap in my ass because <laughs> it was it was freaking brutal. Um, so if you have a second, you know you want to check out <laughs> you want to check out a bit of this as big as professional wrestling. Let's wow. check out Fuck Compton. Um, and then um, then we and then right right after right out of that we signed uh, Cypress Hill, and uh, that was that was like ninety. And uh, I just I, the Cypress Hill the first Cypress Hill record is still one of my favorite records that I've I was ever been involved with. It was just it was so different. It was just it was for me it was kind of revolutionary. And it there was cert, a certain marriage of East Coast and West Coast on that first record that um, um, that was you know that was undeniable. And uh, and it's funny because the uh, uh, Black Friday. Black Sunday, wrong, wrong day. Black Sunday, the second uh, Cypress record. A lot of the songs on that record we recorded while making the first record because we were we were really on a roll, and we decided, no, let's not stop. Let's just keep making records. And a lot of that record was was recorded while we were making the first record. Um, and then that, you know, insane in the membrane, of course, you know that. Um, Forget that about was, it. The, yeah, that was, <laughs> was, was, was through the roof. That record, that, that album entered at number one. And um, I'm, really, um, they, they, I, I'm surprised that, that Cypress never never won a Grammy because they they really should have in terms of their innovation. I, I still I stay in contact with those guys to this day. Um, you know. Yeah, their contribution hasn't really been acknowledged that way anyway. No, the, the, the latest album, Elephants on Acid, which Muggs was an, a part of, uh, he, a major part of uh, was, you know, it's one of the best comeback records that they've had. It's, it's, it's been a minute. Um, but anyway, but you know, uh, they're, they're still just great guys. And like you say, you know, their, their contribution is, was undeniable. undeniable. And, uh, and then uh, in through ninety ninety one, all of a sudden there came uh, this, um, 
this kid by the name of Jermaine Dupree, who I got to, I got, I got introduced to Jermaine Dupree through, it's funny because I got introduced from, to Jermaine through Mio Vukovic, who is now uh, at, at Disney, and uh, Jeff Fenster, who was at Warner, I'm not sure where, where Jeff is today, but to make a long story yep. short, they introduced me to Muggs and Jermaine Dupree. Uh, Muggs was in a band called the 7A3 before Cypress, which evolved into uh, Cypress Hill. And I, I was in L.A. doing a record for Mellow Man Ace uh, called Mentorosa which was also a gold record. And Mellow Man said, you got to check my brother, my brother's band, Senin, Cypress Hill. And it's like, well, Muggs was in Cypress Hill. So that's how the Cypress Hill thing happened. But um, so, so Nino introduced me to Jermaine Dupree and I did this record for Geffen called, with, with this girl rap group called, uh, they were called Silk Times Leather. And um, we were making the Silk Times Leather record and we were at the underground in Atlanta and there were these two kids, like, dressed, just really dressed with, with you know, they just looked like they, they were stars. They just looked like they had something. And we were thought they were part of this band ABC, another band creation uh, at the time. So it was like, are you guys associated with ABC? And they were like, no. And it was, and we said, well, do you guys rap? And they said, no. And it's like, do you guys want to rap? And they were like, "Yeah." And Jermaine is like, "We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna totally, uh, totally cross out your dress. We're gonna make you dress backwards, and we're gonna call you crisscross." And um, so we recorded an EP, um, the little, little Boys in the Hood. Anyway, so it was an EP that was done, and uh, I guess it was uh, uh, David Kahn, who was the head of A&R at the time. He was like, well, maybe, maybe we should turn this into an album. Why don't you guys record a couple of more songs and we'll put out an album. And we recorded Jump and Warm It Up, Chris, as the last two songs of that record. And, of course, uh, Jump is still probably the biggest single that Rough House ever had. I think it's still probably in the top 40 biggest-selling pop singles of all time, I would think. Still to Dude, this they were day. Like, the, like the BTS of their time. I mean, that song, that song just was incredible. It, I um, mean, the, yeah, uh, I mean, and it all happened. They were on In Living Color, which I still have a copy of. I, I have, I have a video, I have uh, video copies of every uh, video we ever shot. I've got Criss Cross on Living Color. I've got the infamous Cypress Hill on Saturday Night Live when Muggs lit a joint on stage. And uh, I'll never forget it, man. Donnie, the president of Columbia, I'll just digress for one second, switching, slipping over. But man, when that happened, Donnie flipped the fuck out. And he, he, he just, he, man, I've never seen him that mad. And we were, well, Cypress was banned from Saturday Night Live forever for, for smoking a joint on stage, you know, on stage. I think you probably get away with it today, but not back then. No, so, no way. So what did that end up selling? Like the crisscross thing? I mean, like what did the single alone sell, let alone the album, you know? Um, let me look. I got these plaques back here somewhere. 
Uh, this thing, I think the single probably did eight million copies <laughs> uh, worldwide. The now the album. It's funny because the Fuji's score and Lauren Hill album-wise, it uh, eclipsed what what the what the Crisscross record did, but it, uh, it it did close close to ten million worldwide the album and the single I think did between six and eight million um, at the Boy, time. That's a, that's a nice little label down there in Pennsylvania pushing yeah, this stuff out. Yeah, we were you know we you know we were we were making some noise and. And yeah. we, you know, we um, we were like the rap label. Uh, I forget what. I guess it was the year. Wow, it's probably the Fuji's "Killing Me Softly" year. We, you know, we were the number one rap label in Billboard um, that year. But um, how did you so meet that, them? Like, how did that signing come about? Um, uh, we our one of my our well, the head of our street team. We we were one of the first labels to have what we called a street team and it was headed by rose Mann, which you you probably remember uh and what we would have was we had we had different kids in each city who would um you know they put snipes up for us they put put banners up they would have their ears to the street and they would you know they would talk up our records and they were called our street team and uh one of the one of the guys in the street team, one of the guys from the street team in East Orange, New Jersey, said there's this band, uh, Translator, the Fuji's Translator crew. And they uh, they uh, they got a, a, a cassette to Rose. We thought it was really cool. So um, what we didn't know is that every major label had passed on the Fuji's at the time. But we thought, you know, this sounds cool. So... Uh, it was me, David Kahn, and, and Chris Schwartz, uh, my partner in Rough House, went up to David Sonnenberg's office. David Sonnenberg, um, big famous uh, manager. He managed Nas. Um, he managed, well, of course he managed, um, it doesn't matter. He man, he man, but at yes. the time he had managed Nas. He, I think he managed, uh, doesn't, I, keep, I forget now. So so he was, but he was you know, a big manager so we went to his office and the fujis performed in his office and by the end of the performance uh wyclef was in his underwear standing on a fender champ uh amplifier with sweat dripping off of his nose <laughs> and we were we just both all of us sat there it was me in the center david Connor on one side and chris on the other side and uh, Chris was like, this is fucking amazing, man. This is great. David Kahn said, I'm, I'm in. And I, I sat there with my arms crossed and I went, I, I don't like it. Ah. I, I, I said, I don't like it. And I had, there was this pregnant pause. I said, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Clef still tells that story of like, he's like, man, when you said, I don't like it, it's like, I thought you were such a fucking asshole, but I was just, I respected to my face. You just said, I don't like it, you know, but of course <laughs> that was not, that was not the case. And, and, um, and we signed the Fuji's and we, and, uh, 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 blunted on reality, I guess was the name of the first album. And really, first single was uh, Boof Buff, which really didn't do anything. So, uh, so we dropped, 
I don't know. I don't remember what the single was after that. But then we, at the very tail end of that record, we dropped um, Nappy Heads, and we did some remixes on Nappy Heads, and it started. It, it started to get a little bit of a buzz, just a little bit of a buzz. So we sold about 113,000 records at that point. And back then, 113,000 records for Donnie and, and Tommy Matola was just like, well, that ain't shit. So Donnie said, um, are, you're not going to be signing the Fugees, are you? Are you going to stay with the Fugees? And we were like, fuck yeah, man. This, this is still starting to happen. So... Since our deal was cross-collateralized, it's like, well, you're spending your own money. I mean, if, you know, if it doesn't happen, you know, it's going to come out of your pocket. So we made the second record, which, of course, was the score. And um, it had this, this song on there, this remake. What was that called? The Killing Me Softly. <laughs> yeah. And um, there you go. Millions of singles again. And that album, I think, did four. 14 million copies worldwide. 14 million wow. copies. Wow. And I, and I remember like when I first, when, when, um, when Clef first played me, Comey, so like he played it and it's like, I'm sure you know the song, of course. Uh, it's just a beat. Lauren is singing. The bass comes in, in the, in the chorus. And then in the second verse, everything drops out again, except the beat. And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking like from an A&R radio standpoint, you know, you wanted to have something that, that was going to work at, at pop radio. And I said to Clef, you know, you got to bring something else in in the second verse, man. It's just the whole, the bottom end drops out and you just got the beat with Lauren. You got to stick something there. And he was like, no, nah, man. Mm -mm. I'm like, come on, man. You got to put, he's like, no, nah, man. Mm -mm. And that's when you realize the artist always knows best of what to do. And that record, you know, that, that you listen to that second verse and it's just a beat, but it's just like Lauren is singing like a freaking angel. And um, the rest is history with that record. Yeah, that's incredible. Dude, it's like, you know, because normally if I spoke to someone about starting their label, you know, normally it would be like, well, gee, how did you get through the hard times? I mean, <laughs> you guys kind of went to, you guys got into the fast lane really quick. I don't have to ask that question. So. No, no, it's it's trying to get back into the fast. <laughs> it's, it's like how do I how do I get this car back on the fast lane? It's just like, but um, you know what, man? You just you never you just don't know. You can't. You, you just make records that you feel passionate about. Right. That you, you're like, I really, 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 really like this, and uh, and you, and you hope other people like it too. You know, and, and what were the challenges for you? I mean, as you balance kind of being more on the creative side in the studio versus kind of an entrepreneur. And I've got this label that's kind of a business, too. Um, and I know Chris was your partner and kind of handled some of that side. Um, but what was that pressure like for you? And how did you balance like your time? Um, we would, we would like, um, we'd go to New York um, every every two weeks. We would spend uh, two days in New York. And, uh, uh, so, so, you know, there was a, there was a little bit of both, but I, I have to say, you know, uh, I, I was really fortunate that, uh, Chris, you know, let me stay in the, in the kitchen with the ax. And, uh, I was, you know, somewhat insulated from the, um, you know, from, from the business aspect. And again, when, when things are popping, 
you know, it's it's all pretty good. It's it's just when the lean times happen, and you know, I don't remember ever having in the 10, 11 years that we were at at Columbia. Um, I just don't remember ever having a time where you know the the bean counters up at Sony are, are kind of pissed, man. You know, you gotta you know spill, spill some blood on this baby because you know it's been a little bit dry. You know, you've been zero for seven, and you know. Uh, you haven't had to, haven't had a couple of home runs in a couple of games because then after after the Fuji's then there was Wyclef Carnival that was a that was a double platinum record Praz he uh, 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 no, it was not Wantanam it was Praz um, he had a he had a he had a gold single and then of course there was Lauren Hill seven I mean five Grammys <laughs> so. <laughs> So it was, you know, there was pressure, but, but I, you know, at the, at the time it was just trying to hold on with both hands to the, on the, uh, on the roller coaster ride. You know, it was right. just, you don't, you know, at the time you're just, you know, because there was Cypress, there was, you know, there was crisscross, there was the Fuji's, you know, and the people don't realize crisscross had three multi-platinum records, you know, they weren't a one hit wonder. It, you know, it just that, and of course, tragically, uh, Chris Kelly passed away a couple of years ago that, um, you know, so. Yeah. But see, that's why the bean counters couldn't really touch you because, you know, you're talking about putting a billing of like a half a billion dollars and, yeah. and they're stealing from you anyway, somehow. So there was no way they were going to get on your tail. No, no. And, and they steal from you, but you know, uh, it was funny, man. And then I, 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 this is, this is really, this is a true, this is actually true how, how the, uh, uh, how the, uh, Tommy Matola, Donnie Iron Machine worked. When we would have a huge, here's the thing, when we had a huge hit, we would go up there and ask for a lot of money and they would counteract with a lot of money. When, when we never, we never got, a statement with a check at the bottom of the statement. And the statements were like, you know, just for one act that you, you remember was like four inches thick. Well, when you pop, when you pile up all our statements, it was just like, you know, we would, you know, we would, like I said, you know, the, the Fuji's, you know, whatever. And so the membrane hits, we go up there and ask for a ton of money. They give us money. The Cypress, I mean, the Fuji's hit, we ask for a ton, ton of money. They give us a ton of money. Uh, and then with Lauren, we, they, 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 we, we, you know, we had a joint venture and they, they bought us out of the joint venture. So it was really a series of several huge checks is that's basically how it went. Right. So you front loaded it a little bit or not really front loaded it. No, they were, they were, it yeah. You know, they, you, they, it was, um. Oh, it was instinctual billing, I think is how it, how it uh, used to, <laughs> instinctual billing. And, yeah, uh, I, I never saw, I never saw a statement either with a check. So that just so you know, it was kind of common practice. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I, I don't have, I have no complaints uh, in terms of, I do wish that uh, I had kept a certain percentage of, uh, of, of, uh, of rough house It's funny. And then, and then after, when, after I sold Rough House, when we sold Rough House to Sony, um, I spent a couple of years at RCA with uh, Jack Rovner and Bob Jameson. 
uh, because I guess Wu Tang had left, but but Nipper didn't didn't really Nipper just shit the bed when it came to to uh, urban rap. It, it just didn't work out. I'm not I'm not blaming. Uh, RCA or the people who were there. I mean, you try, and the, the, we did a couple of records there, and it just it just didn't happen. But then um, that only lasted for a couple of years, and then then I actually I I, I went into the movie business. <laughs> yes, here's another life for you. Oh my god! Well, that was a baptism of fire. The first movie I ever made was with Merv Griffin, believe it or not, and it was. Uh, uh, it came out through RKO Pictures, and it starred Jamie Foxx, Sylvester Stallone, Gabriel Byrne, Tandy Newton, Stuart Townsend, uh, uh, Dina Merrill, um, Melanie Griffith. What was um, that? Shade? What was it called? Shade? Yes, that movie? Shade. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I made that with Merv Griffin. Um and uh, I actually, how did you do that? I mean, how did you? Do, I mean, you just don't wake up one day and like, hey, I'm a film producer. I mean, what led to that happening? Um, I had a, I had two other partners, uh, two other partners who were in the movie business, uh, uh, Steve Stone and Thad Shirey, and they kind of pushed me towards the movie business. Uh, and I had I had been working with a couple of producers out in L.A. And um, when you spend your own money. <laughs> you be, you can become a movie producer. That's what, that's one way. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and that was that was Baptism of the Fire. But it's funny because uh, that was like two thousand, like right around two thousand two, two thousand and three, um, and uh, the white the international rights of that movie. Is, you can see, I mean, it's on Hulu, it's on Showtime, it's it's around. Uh, but the international rights finally reverted back to me this past year. So. Uh, the, around, in the second round, I am finally going to recoup on that movie, which is good. What the heck, you know? There you go. Uh, hey, that's better well, than most. Yeah, a lot of movies don't. A lot of movies don't recoup. So, but uh, and then I did another another movie. I did a movie, Game Six, with uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Michael Keaton. Uh, that was a cool movie. I did a movie uh, called uh, Just Add Water with. Um, uh, Danny DeVito and Dylan Walsh and Jonah Hill, uh, and you know, but never, never had anything to pop. But that was, the, man, when you're when you're produ producing a movie, it's not like producing a record. It's like you're the foreman on a on a building that every day has a three alarm fire going somewhere. I mean, the director and the I mean the editor and the director they're the real creative people. So it was just like it was just not a creative thing for me so for five, I guess five or six years ago I decided to I just want to get back and tinker and make music make records right yeah you get a little too removed in the film business you know the length of time just to to get a project to where you can actually shoot it um, and then you know with the size of the crews right it's just like I am just like a COO really um, as a producer so correct Exactly. There's, yeah. there's no, there's no create, there's no creativity to it. Where, of course, if you're producing a record, hey man, and you're and producing music, you're creating. You can create from nothing. Nothing. You yeah. can create from nothing. So, you know. So go back a bit. You worked on um, kind of Billy Joel's last kind of studio record, right? Wasn't River of Dreams? Correct. Did I, you um, produce the 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 main single, or did you work on the entire project? 
I worked on three, the, uh, the, the, I guess Danny Cooch, Danny Korchmar had, was, was uh, the elected producer on that record. And uh, Donnie and uh, David Kahn, they just, they, I guess they weren't <clears throat> real happy with, with its direction. So I was brought in and I worked on, um, I did, I did kind of redid the, the, the singles, uh, All About Soul, uh, River of Dreams, and I guess Lullaby was the third single. So, uh, and that's, I was, as you said, I was a staff producer for Columbia Records for like 10 years. I would, I was the guy who came in and, you know, um, Sophie B. Hawkins and uh, James Taylor and Aerosmith, Cindy Lauper. Uh, I was, you know, I, I, I was the guy who made Jerry Blair very happy. As you know, Jerry right. Blair was, it was funny, Jerry Blair, for people out there, he, he was the head of radio. Crazy energy, crazy, crazy energy. Crazy energy. So when I, you know, so if Donnie wanted me to work on, you know, the, the Billy Joel record, uh, if I went in and, and played it for Donnie Einer, who was the president, and he loved it, but I played it for Jerry Blair, the radio guy, and he didn't like it, I had failed. But if I went in, get something, and I'm like, yeah, so I throw him the cassette, he'd put it in the machine, he'd repeat it play. So if he was happy, I was happy, because I knew he could get it played at radio, if it got played at radio, people would listen to it, if they listened to it, they bought it. And that was right. the most important, and, and hey man, it's not brain surgery, that's how shit worked. Right. And so now you, how many, like you've been nominated for a lot of Grammys. How many Grammys have you won? Uh, nine. I was nominated, I think, for 13. Um, of course, well, five, of course, was, was for Lauren Hill. Right. Um, two, okay, uh, James Taylor, Jazzy Jeff from the Fresh Prince, two for the Fugees. Yeah, did River of Dreams win anything? No, that was man. It was Not I mean, nomination. I was, yeah, I mean, we were. That was the year when we were up against the Bodyguard, and I will always love you. And uh, we knew we weren't going to. I mean, it was that was like one of those. You know, it was it was a steamroller that was going to kick everybody's ass, yep. which we knew. And me and Billy, we had a we had a, a, a a blue solo cup, not a red, a blue solo cup with scotch that we were just pa passing back and forth. <laughs> and, um, never, but I got to sit in the front row, uh, with Sting and Billy and, 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 uh, and, and Tony Bennett. And I'll never forget, man, that year, um, a, a, a lot of us do this because of, I mean, my, I do this because of the Beatles and Stevie Wonder. Okay. I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Yes, I'm that old. And it's like, this is what I want to do with my life. So after that, um, at that was, I guess it was 90, uh, 93, 1993, right? So yep. uh, I'm walking out and in the lobby, uh, it was at Radio City Music Hall. There is George Martin talking to Meatloaf. I mean, the guy, not the food. <laughs> and... Um, so I'm like, I, I have to do this. So I walk up, <clears throat> Mr. Martin, hi, Joe Niccolo, I produced Billy Joel this year. I have to, I know you hear this all the time, but I have to tell you, you know, you're my, you're my mentor, you know, you're why I do this. And he looked down at me <clears throat> without missing a beat. And he said, 
could you tell me where the rainbow room is? And <laughs> now, for people, the, the rainbow room is, is kind of it's where the buffet is after the Grammys, up way up on the top of the of the building of Radio City. <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah, I can take, yeah, I can show you how to get there. It's just the elevators, right? <laughs> You can tell oh, me where the rainbow room is. But nice. <clears throat> so you were recently, I mean, you were inducted. Was it the Philadelphia Music Hall of Fame, or is it a Walk of Fame, or Hall of Fame? It's it's the Walk. Yes, it's the Walk of Fame. It's in front of the Kimmel Center, um, and there's there's a plaque on the ground that you can step on. That, <laughs> <laughs> that I'm sure people do. But it's uh, no man. It's it's a great honor. I mean, we we were inducted with uh, I think Patty Labelle and. Um, and a few other people. It's um, it's it's an honor. I mean, like, you know, it's like Philly. Philly was that you know, it's that it's that in between place. But um, we we have an amazing music history here, and uh, the musicians here are, are just okay. You, know, you have Nashville, of course. You got New York. You got your LA cats. But the Philly guys, man, they they made me look good through all the years of the, of the records that I that I've made. You know, it's like so. It was an honor. It was great. That's incredible. Well, your contributions are great. I mean, and you definitely made that city vibrant during the or the run of Rough House and Studio Four. Um, what did you? I mean, what's what do you enjoy most? I mean, being a producer for an entire project, or you like the mixing process? What's your What's your thing? I I um well, gosh, I really like both, but I I guess I guess mixing is my favorite because. That that's where that's where you, that's where a song where you can make or break um, a song. I mean that's that's where you put it all together, and that's that's kind of like additional production and mixing is is so much of what I did aside from the rough house stuff. But even the rough house stuff is like, you know, being the head of A and R for uh, for rough house, the the way you can you know the way you control a project is. Okay, so the tracks are there. What what does it need, or how do you mix it? So I was able to control to control the A and R aspect of a record by mixing it. So you know that was that was that was the key part. But I still I still I still like tracking. I, I still like recording things start to finish. But I think probably mixing is my favorite. Yes. Yeah. What are you listening to right now? Is there anything that you're loving? I mean, that you were involved with, or just hearing that you'd really like? Um, I'm um, right now. I'm I'm working with a with a couple of acts. Um, two two acts in Philly in in particular uh, is this band Johnny Showcase and another band called Ooh La La that uh, that I've been I've been working with. I've um, but actually, the, the, over the uh, of course, the the coronavirus has, has put us into freaking suspended animation, unfortunately. But um, I've started a foundation with uh, Tony Luke Jr. Um, if you're from Philly, you know who Tony Luke is. He's the cheesesteak king of Philadelphia, Tony Luke. <laughs> and um, actually, you can you can buy his cheesesteaks in in the frozen food section of your favorite market. But uh, so he, he's had these. He's had this. This. He's the, kind of like the cheesesteak king. He's also on QVC. He's a chef, and um, unfortunately, several years ago, his son uh, passed away from a heroin overdose, and uh, it affected him dramatically. And uh, he used to be Tony Lucidonio, who I knew way back and would write, write songs for Atlantic and. 
to make a long story short, we started making music and it, it really helped him get through that hard time. And we decided, we decided to start a foundation, which we've called the Sound Mind Network. Basically, it's to, it's, our mission statement is to change the way people look, the, how the world looks at addiction and mental illness. And um, we've just got it, we really just started getting, to, getting it together. I've reached out um, to, um, to a bunch of people, to Sophie B. Hawkins, to Cindy Lauper, to Billy Joel. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're either, I'm either retooling songs that we did or creating new songs, which, um, and, you know, basically it's, it's, gonna, it's an awareness factor. Um, we'll have a website where people who are traumatized, uh, suicidal, you know, have addiction problems, you know, that's basically what we're tooling it up. We've got our foundation together. We've got our board of directors together, but the, you know, the Corona thing has really stopped everything dead in its tracks. But, um, but what it did, it, it, it we, I rehooked with Sophie B. Hawkins and um, we're making a new record that I think is one of the, it's, it's the best record that she's made since the beginning of her career. I just, I can't say enough about this new record that we're making. So, um, Fantastic. so that's, you know, that's, you know, it, it's keeping me, it's keeping me busy. I, you know, I love the shit on the radio. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to front. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for a good pop song, you know, because I still know that that's, that's what people want to hear. So it's not like, Oh, the music today is garbage. Yeah. No, it's not garbage. There's garbage out there. There's always garbage out there, you know? Yep. So. Nope. I hear you. So listen, I, um, I'm grateful for you as a friend. I'm grateful for all you taught me when I was a young kind of A&R guy kind of coming up. Um, and your contributions have been enormous and uh, uh, amazing. Well, you know, man, you, you're one of the good guys. And it, this is, this been, it's been a total pleasure to hook up. Let's obviously, uh, let's stay in touch. Uh, if, if, if everyone is screaming and yelling how much, how, you know, I have a hundred million stories. So, you know, we can, we can always do this again or we can, part you know, two. yeah. As a matter of fact, when, uh, if you'd like, when Sophie is here, I'd, I'd love to have a little, a little session with, with Sophie and she can talk about, um, you know, yeah, that'd be uh, incredible. Yeah, and I'm um, I'm hoping that Sophie. I'm uh, look. I'm hoping that Sophie and Joan Osborne do a song together. I've asked Joan, uh, and then if I get those two on on the record, then um, I'm going to ask Cindy Lop. Cindy's been great. She's she's going to she's doing PSAs for the foundation, but I haven't asked her yet about being involved. I want to kind of do like a three tenors record with Sophie, uh, cool. you know, Joan and uh, great. Um, yeah, so we'll see what happens. That, that, that's great. All right, mate. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, buddy. I will talk you to you care. soon. See ya. All right, man. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat also i would be honored if you'd subscribe at apple or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts till next week 